Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. With me in the studio today is Professor Christina Butler. She's professor at the American College of the Building Arts in Charleston and also an adjunct professor at the College of Charleston. She has written a fascinating new book. Now, it's got an interesting title. It's, an, it's called Low Country at High Tide, A History of Flooding, Drainage, and Reclamation in Charleston, South Carolina. Folks, if you want to find out why Charleston has problems with flooding today, this is a book that gives you all the answers. So with that introduction, Christina, welcome to the journal. Thank you so much for having me here. I'm so excited. Okay. Flooding, drainage, and reclamation. Most people who lived in Charleston today would say, flooding and drainage? 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 Flooding, yes, every five days, right? Right. So what made you decide to tackle this project? So I am from uh, Cleveland, Ohio originally, which obviously doesn't have any coastal flooding, no tidal fluctuation. So when I moved to Charleston in 2004, we had a small tropical storm a couple days after I arrived. And the aftermath was minimal compared to a bigger storm, but I was just fascinated with how quickly parts of the peninsula reverted back to what turns out to be <laughs> a tidal creek that was, you know, improperly filled historically. So as a preservationist, I became really interested in trying to compare the original high ground versus made land and trying to understand how and why people filled the peninsula and what went wrong and why we have so many flooding problems still today, despite 300 years of trying to fix it. All right. I believe you say in your book that only 50% of the peninsula is actually original high ground. Is that correct? That's correct. So when we think of reclamation, we typically think of impounding land, building a seawall, backfilling, and just creating new acreage. And that's part of Charleston's story. But we also had hundreds of acres that would have been usable or walkable at low tide that exist on a plat, and then at high tide would be two or three feet underwater. So we're actually reclaiming land from the river, but then we're also trying to fill in marshes that are high sometimes and usable and low others. At one time, Charleston's waterfront was the other side of the Exchange Building. Yes. People came through the Exchange Building to get into the Port of Charleston. Now it's 300 feet out into the Cooper River. Yes. So all of that territory is made land. And you go about, and let's start with that because you talk about how that land got made. And that was pretty, it started off accidentally and then it became intentional. Yes. So that's one of the struggles with Charleston. And it's very easy in 2020 to be annoyed at, you know, perceived lacks of infrastructure. But so much of our early fill, there was no engineer involved. There wasn't even a municipal government yet. So it's private developers, incidentally, like Henry Lawrence, who are buying marshland doing speculative development on it and trying to turn it into lots. And then folks accidentally filling along the waterfront just by accretion of garbage and silt getting stuck between the wharves. And then after a couple decades of that, you have docks that are too shallow to actually put a deep draft boat into. So over time, we sort of gradually and accidentally built a couple of blocks onto the east side of the peninsula. So it's sort of no wonder they don't drain correctly because they weren't actually planned. I think we need to talk for a minute about how those early docks or wharfs were built, because people think today if you drive pilings and it's raised, wooden, and what have you, that's not the way they built those docks in Charleston in the late 17th and the early 18th century. Right. So I think for me, looking at the engineering, the building, and the how and the why was the most exciting part of the project. Comparing maps is was the easiest. You walk down Water Street and you can see it goes downhill, and that lines up with a creek on a map historically. The wharfs were a little bit more difficult because you can see them on a map or a plat, but you can't really visualize how they're constructed because, as you mentioned, today we just slam piles. 
-hmm. and water can move below those wharves or docks. Historically, they're building crib works, actual wooden frames, and they're submerging them and backfilling them. So they would have actually been hard-packed, made land. So you could offload thousands of pounds of material off of a ship. You could build warehouses and store barrels on those wharves. So they're not hollow that water can go under like a modern one. Well, I'm thinking about the topography and the the geography of coastal South Carolina. What are they filling it with? You know, they can fill it with dirt, but they're not stones. I mean, they, 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 you know, unless... They hadn't yet discovered the, you know, Fairfield County full of rocks to be able to bring things down. So they just putting dirt in it, garbage, right. everything. Literally anything and everything. So as you mentioned, there's there's no Quincy granite yet. We don't have any stone available on the on the Low Country coastline except shipping it in from you know New England or Europe, which is very expensive. So Charlestonians basically had to use whatever was locally available. And they're they're using a mix of you know, pluff mud. They're trying to use sand, which won't compact properly, so you can't really create a buildable site with sand. Well, how do you make pluff mud? How do you pack <laughs> right. pluff mud? I, I thought you sink through pluff mud. You do, and that's the problem. That's all we have is sand and pluff mud and clay. And, you know, pluff mud, if you dry it out, it'll get cakey, but it's not really the kind of material you can squish the water out of with a little manual ram, which is all they would have had. So um, there were folks up the Ashley River with plantations who would sell earth or dirt and then, you know, ship it down the river on a flat boat, which wasn't as expensive as shipping in stone, but still pretty costly. Okay. They, they built these big wooden cribs. Um, and eventually they were using palmetto logs, right? Yes. Okay. And they sink them. But do they anchor them? I mean, it seems like it's a pretty loose construction. Yes, a very loose construction. So what will happen is those crib works, which aren't pinned in a modern sense, if they would move or rock or a storm came, all of the fill, which is, you know, sand, pluff, mud, garbage, you know, potentially ballast stone, literally whatever was cheap or free, would subside out the bottom of those crib works and then silt up the dock area where the ships are supposed to be located. So it's it's pretty haphazard construction really so that but that's how the Cooper River side of the city began to expand is the leaking wharfs yes, <laughs> yes. now one thing you didn't mention at one point they were throwing carcasses in there too, right? Oh, yeah. I have some choice quotes in the book about the pretty unsanitary things that were used for fill. So there, we actually in Charleston had a, a pretty decent sanitation department or forerunner. Um, the scavengers department would come and pick up house waste and street debris. Okay, now debris. stop the, the scavenger department. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Classy name. All right. I knew Charleston had had a... Uh, Commissioner of the streets, basically. But I didn't know they had scavengers. I thought that was just the turkey buzzards and the the pigs that roamed free. Right. Well, there was never enough scavengers, hence we had the turkey buzzard situation in the market. But um, even in the 18th century, Charleston had um, a commissioner of streets. You know, we had a commissioner of fortifications. And by 1750, there's a handful of enslaved scavengers driving basically wooden drays or trash carts around the city. And as they're collecting that refuse, which, of course, is going to have horse carcasses and slaughterhouse remains and anything you can't eat, basically, they're picking that up and they're depositing it into low spots that flood in the street or they're dumping it into the into the marshes. And then that kind of pushes back with the tide and accretes next to <laughs> the waterfront. And again, you slowly end up with new land. Uh, we enjoy the smell of puffed, <laughs> pluff mud at low tide, but I'm thinking about, you know, wasn't it Vandross Creek that came right on into the city? Yes, yes. So they're dumping it into there, and that's in somebody's backyard. Exactly. So we think of the waterfront as being the most prestigious, beautiful part of the city. But historically, it not only would have been loud and dangerous because of early cranes and ships and 
carriage traffic. It also would have been extremely foul-smelling between the pluff mud and rotting garbage sitting in the salt water and the heat and the wharf rats. It would have been unpleasant. All right. And we're still on the Cooper River side because that, that whole area is just fascinating. They are building the wharfs, but that is still low land at high tide Water was basically covering East Bay Street, right? Exactly, right up to East Bay Street. That's why that's where all the warehouses and factors offices are. So the exchange is literally waterfront, and you could pull a ship right up to that building. Wow. So what were some of the early efforts besides reclamation? It seems like in South Carolina and everywhere. All right, you can fill it in, but you also want to build a wall. Right. Recently, looking at... uh, Cameron Parish, Louisiana, trying to get ready for another storm this this summer. They showed a seawall, which must have been four, literally 40 or 50 feet high, and it had this huge door, metal door that had to be moved into place uh, by a tractor. So human beings see, you know, we'll build a wall and that'll keep it out. Did they start doing that early on in Charleston? They did. So much like Louisiana... A high ground is only high part of the day because we have tidal fluctuation. So when you have a storm surge, eight foot above sea level, which is fine, you know, 360 days of the year is suddenly in ground zero. So besides accidental fill, our colonial government was pretty much from the very beginning interested in building some kind of a seawall. So by 1694, a pretty massive half-mile-long brick seawall is under construction where East Bay Street is today. And it was a sort of dual-use wall. It was supposed to be a fortification, so it had embrasures and gun emplacements on it, but it also doubled as as a seawall. So it would have had a slight batter or pitch on the front of it to help withstand the action of the tides just slamming into it every day. And what was that one? That made it, it was brick? Yeah, that was one of the um, more permanent and substantial seawalls. So it was constructed out of brick. It was one of the more expensive fortifications. And it's hard to picture it today because most of it is still in East Bay Street, below our street level. But at the base, it was almost, you know, six to eight foot wide. And then it would kind of slope or batter inward as it went up. So we're talking millions of bricks. And those would have been handmade downtown, probably on site, just under-fired soft local brick. Okay. That that in itself is, is mind-boggling. Uh, but we've seen the work done by somebody named Nick Butler on... <laughs> That seawall and its uncovering. But that also means that the street level at East Bay was raised. Absolutely. So, I mean, they did knock part of the wall down after the American Revolution because we didn't think we would need those fortifications anymore. So they busted off everything that would have been in the way of development. So if you had a waterfront lot with a wharf, that seawall would have been an obstruction. But besides chipping that down to their street level, we've also filled and paved over and over again and actually raised the level of East Bay Street. So when you walk past Rainbow Row and you look at the cellar doors, there would have probably been another foot or so of that building that would have been visible originally. Okay, wow. Christina, we need to pause for a moment, let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal, and I'm talking with Professor Christina Butler about her new book, Low Country at High Tide, and it deals with the history of flooding and draining and building the peninsula of Charleston over 350 years. So we're reclaiming the land, and we're dealing with the 18th century and the early 19th century, but Charlestonians kept doing that well into the 20th century. Yes, they they did it as long as they were allowed. And so just jumping way forward in the chronology of the book, by the late 20th century, a lot of our reclamation projects are, are drawing to a close. And it's not for lack of need of more buildable land, because we're always just looking for more land to develop in the low country. It was more because of federal guidelines, wetlands protection acts, environmental movement, um, that basically outside governments told the local government, you can't be reclaiming wetlands any longer. 
Okay, let's let's look. We, we've been dealing with the Cooper River side of the city. Let's talk about the development around the rest of the peninsula. We've, we've, we've done East Bay Street, Cooper River. Let's start with the tip, White Point Gardens, and move on around to the Ashley River side of, of the city. Because having studied 17th and 18th century Charleston, I know that what we now call White Point Gardens wasn't there. Pretty much at South Battery, that's where that's where the real land ended. Right. So White Point Garden is sort of an interesting example of trial and error. So the 1690 seawall we mentioned survived pretty well intact. And after the American Revolution, the city's growing. It's the 19th century. We're into the parks movement, the cemetery movement, trying to beautify the city. And so the municipal government in the 1830s decides to create White Point. And it had a proper seawall, but that park is actually built on several earlier iterations of seawalls, some of which were wood, some of which were Bermuda stone and brick, which eroded really heavily in hurricanes in the early 19th century. So the 1830s version that's still there today is basically built on the foundation of a couple earlier failures. So the, the seawall, if you're walking high battery... Dates back to the 1830s? Part of it does. So when you're walking down East Bay Street, right before you hit the battery, the high seawall, you'll notice that the land starts to drop, the topography drops, because you're entering the made land. So the high battery seawall with the mansions, that's actually late 18th century seawall that got rebuilt and redeveloped. So most of what's there now, the big stones that you walk on, is 1818 and 1855 repairs after a massive hurricane. And White Point Garden there at sort of the tip of the peninsula is 1830s, and then there's an 1850s expansion on the side of it. So basically, Charleston government slowly but surely worked their way around the peninsula to create high ground, seawalls, and parks. All right. And as, as you keep moving around the battery, you've got a high battery, then you've got low battery. And that dates from the early 20th century, doesn't it? It does. Okay. Let's, let's talk about that because that's where you have a lot of flooding problems today. Yes. So when you're walking around the city, it's really hard to notice our topography kind of ebbing and flowing because we don't have hills. It's not like there's a pronounced drop off, but there is enough of a, a change that you'll have flooding anywhere that is filled that's settled. So the high battery was done pretty well. And White Point Garden was planned by an engineer. And so it uses stone. It has proper foundations. Then you go around the corner to Murray Boulevard, the low battery, and that's an early 20th century project. And the city contracted with, you know, external contractors and the city engineers planned that project. And as often happens, the engineers had a best practices plan and funding meant that certain corners were cut, compounded by having a giant material shortage during World War One. And so Murray Boulevard is actually lower than the engineers had said that it should be. And the piles, which were concrete and steel, weren't driven as deep as they were supposed to be. And several were substituted for pine piles because of the war effort. They couldn't get the materials to finish the project. All right. Now, as I understand it, you're talking about putting in piles. There actually is deep down, there is moral. There's a, there is substance down there. How far? You know, it, it depends, 60 to 100 foot. So marl is, it's more stable than pluff mud, but we don't have a shelf of bedrock. You can drive a pile all day and you're not going to hit stable stone like you would, you know, on the New England coast. So when we want to create a seawall or a foundation for a new eight-story hotel building or whatever you're constructing, you basically... Drive piles 60 to 100 feet and, and hope you hit marl. And if you don't, as long as you have a grid work of enough piles to help stabilize the footers of the foundation, it's, it's almost like it's sort of able to float, almost like a raft. Didn't an 18th century, didn't de Brom float 
the the fortifications on Calhoun Street, what we now call, it was Boundary Street. Right. Calhoun Street in the years before the revolution. Yeah. So there's some great illustrations that show the construction of the 18th century fortifications. But you're looking at either a, a brick in Charleston or stone design for elsewhere, and the wall is straight on one side and sloped on the other. And then at the base, there's an actual crib work or raft of wood framing, and that sits on top of stakes, basically pine or cypress stakes that are driven into the ground. So it, it seems impossible that a wooden piled framework can support tons and tons of masonry, but it can, especially if you backfill around it and it can't really move much seismically. I've got a daughter who lives in Boston and it seems like in the old parts of Boston, in the fill land, those pilings are now disintegrating. Is that true in Charleston too? It can be. So part of the issue is if if you have wood or something organic trapped in an anaerobic environment where it's not getting any airflow or oxygen, it can stay intact and not rot. The problem is where you have constant wetting and drying. So it's something... I tell my students about all the time, wood sitting in water isn't a problem. Wood getting wet and dry over and over again is what causes rot and degradation. So when the Walled City Task Force did archaeology, they found 18th century cypress piles that still had bark and texture on them. They looked like they had been cut yesterday because they were submerged. The problem comes where you have foundations that are inundated when we have a tidal surge, and then they dry back out. And that happens, you know, a couple times a year over and over, and that'll just eat the foundation of a building or a seawall. I guess that brings me to the next question is, what about buildings beginning to sink? Definitely a problem. So considering the fact that we didn't pour concrete modern footers that had rebar metal to tie to the frame of the building. Traditionally, if somebody was doing a masonry building, they'd dig a construction trench and they'd start the courses below grade a little bit wider than the wall. And they'd sort of step the wall in with each story. That works if you have stable ground. If you have made land or marl, um, that foundation is going to settle. It's probably not going to settle uniformly. And when we have seismic activity like the earthquake of 1886, buildings on historic foundations on made land will just crumble. I mean, the masonry is not properly supported by the ground. And I want to mention, not going to give the address, but a house south of Broad, close to the Battery Masonry House, that had a raised basement that originally would have been sort of open to the air. And in the 19th century, it was finished as living space. And a couple of years ago, I was in it to do um, a quick building pathology report. And somebody had removed all the plaster. And in the wall, there was voids about six inches wide and six inches deep, where there used to be basically sill beams at the base of the structure. And that wood is what the plaster lath would have been attached to. It was completely gone. It had rotted or eroded away from that building flooding probably 10 times in the last 150 years. So the wood, because it got wet and dry, just disappeared. And the house at the same time was starting to settle because it was on made ground. Oh, wow. Kind of scary. So how do you deal with that? I mean... What can you do to the structure? I mean, I know you can move a masonry structure. You know, it's, we've seen it done in historic preservation. But what what is the answer? I mean, you know, it's it's a complicated problem. You know, part of it because of financing, part of it because if you relocate a historic structure, you've you've changed its context. It's not really the same building anymore. And so it's actually, I would say, one of the biggest preservation conundrums of this decade. All of these coastal communities that are at increasing risk. So um, there's actually a, a conference, an annual conference called Keeping History Above Water. And it's a bunch of preservationists who get together to try and answer those questions about how to save historic buildings in wetlands 
while keeping them as much intact as possible. All right. Is that a local or a national group? Um, so it's hosted this year in Charleston. In the past, it's been in Newport. Uh, I think Clemson is spearheading it this year. So um, it, it's hosted locally in Charleston, but it is a national conference. Okay. That brings me to my to my next question, and that is, we know through stories in the Post and Courier newspaper that preserving houses in the area around on the Ashley River side, particularly near Murray Boulevard, historic houses have been flooded two or three times in the last five years. And the Board of Architectural Review, which can say yay or nay on anything in the historic district, initially wasn't allowing anything to be done. You couldn't raise your house, even though if you had a FEMA map, that house might need to be five feet bore. And actually, there have been historic structures now demolished because they could not be saved in situ. Is that not correct? That is correct. So the Board of Architecture recently has sort of reversed their stance, which I think is great, um, where they will now allow you to elevate a historic house. So let's say you have a house on Lenwood or Murray Boulevard, and the ground is settling, or maybe your foundation just wasn't done to modern code because it's an 1890s house or a 1920s house. So your choices would be to do nothing, which eventually the house becomes uninsurable. You could potentially elevate the house, which is expensive, but much cheaper than option three, which would be relocating a building. And that's just not practical for a city like Charleston, where everything is close together and people buy houses for that historic context. So the preferred method now is elevating the building and trying to design the foundation so it looks like a traditional raised basement, and then basically setting the historic house down on a new base. Okay. Are, are those houses that are being raised, are they going to be meeting FEMA standards? Or? They do. So there's really no point elevating a house just a couple feet. If you want to be FEMA compliant and have affordable flood insurance, you, you need to you need to meet the current flood map requirements. So they will allow you now, with permission, to elevate a house to FEMA height. And the thing that occurs is the streetscape starts to change because you have historic houses low that haven't been elevated yet, and then the house next door is a story taller. The counter-argument would be that Most historic houses, if the owner could afford to, they put it on a raised basement because they knew it was going to flood. So a lot of our flooding problems, I think, are partially because we've taken sections of buildings that used to be breathable and drainable, and we've turned them into living space. Mm -hmm. Or we've, because we need plumbing and air conditioning and electric, we run ductwork and things under the house in an area that's going to flood. So historically, before you needed any of that in a house, the the water could sort of go in and out of that raised basement without doing the damage it does now. Well, that's why old-fashioned beach houses used to be built up. Yes, exactly. (laughs) They knew. You you know, because the tides come in and, you know, storms hurt. Anyway, that's, that's, that's another story. But you mentioned a term a little while ago that I want to have you explain to our listeners. You talked about this house that you did not name, that you were doing a house pathology of it? Yes. Um, so I do. T- I, I mean, that sounds like a, you know, after a murder, you're opening right. up the body. <laughs> Dissecting and looking at the damage. That That's literally <laughs> what we're doing. So uh, I teach a class at College of Charleston called Building Pathology. And with the students, we'll walk through how buildings are constructed historically. So we go from foundation to framing to roofing to, you know, exterior siding to plumbing to finish. And we'll look at different products and methodologies over time. We'll look at what makes those materials and practices break down. And then ultimately, as a preservationist, what would you do about that? How would you fix it? So it's a really fun class to teach, but then I do those sorts of reports through my business as well. Um, So like historic structures reports. How old is this? How was it built? What's wrong with it? What do we do? Having dealt with some older buildings, not necessarily historic, uh, but even some of those, you never know what you're going to get until you take down the plaster. (laughs) 
right. And sometimes it's fine and sometimes it's a crisis. And, you know, imagine being a city engineer in Charleston today. It's 2020. And there's a small street cave in on Spring Street and you show up and they literally don't know what they're going to find under that street. You know, well, hopefully now they'll look at my book and that might help them out a little bit. But you just never know who's repaired something a strange way. You never know who cut a corner and used cheaper mortar. You know, 200 years ago, you peel back layers and then you find some surprises. Speaking of that streetscape, we've been dealing with with buildings, but Charleston putting in sewers, water, all of that into an unstable ground. And they were even having trouble with that back in the 19th century, right? Or 18th century. Yeah, from pretty much the beginning. So... Uh, the reason there's so much on drainage in the book, which I realize isn't the most glamorous of topics, but <laughs> without proper tidal drainage and storm drainage, Charleston wouldn't be habitable. Because even if you elevate a space, as we mentioned, if you have a spot that's slightly lower, like a, a, there used to be a pond and now there's a depression in the street, or a tidal surge comes in and water gets over the seawall, which it does when we have a big storm, there has to be a way to get that water back off of the street. And so Charleston has subterranean tidal drains. Okay. I had heard about those, and actually at one time, Mayor Tecklenburg tried to explain it to me uh, at a cocktail party on Eldestowe Island. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, I, I didn't quite get it, but you please explain that. How, how much water will that hold? So the tidal drains weren't really designed like a reservoir. So like think about, you know, L.A. County, they have those big concrete, huge reservoirs that, that can just take all the surface drainage. These aren't retention devices necessarily. Okay. So in terms of diameter, anywhere from three foot to six foot. So big enough for a person to scuttle through and inspect periodically. Okay. But isn't there, aren't there great big I want to say storerooms where, th where the water comes in and then they pump it out? Uh, in the new ones. So I'll explain the historic ones just uh, uh, kind of yeah, uh, quickly uh, uh, and then compare it to the modern okay, ones. Okay, please. So the 19th century antebellum tidal drains under the city, they still work. I mean, they'll still wick water down and then out to the rivers. So if you imagine tidal drains going from river to river under the city, and they're constructed out of brick. So, of course, if the ground moves or settles, that brick is going to heave and you're going to have cracks or cave-ins, which still happens on occasion. But those drains are designed with floodgates on the ends of them. Okay, I was like, going to ask that. They're, they're tidal, which means, okay, at low tide, the water will go out. At high tide— It just comes right on in is what it does. So, I mean— I'm sure in the 19th, 18th and 19th century, they were using wood just like they would have been on a rice trunk. Exactly like a rice trunk. And I, I guess we better explain what a rice trunk is. For Our rice fields were enclosed by large earthen dikes, and they were flooded uh, because this was a wet culture of rice. It worked on the tides. It was a cypress box that had a movable gate at either end, which could be made stationary if you wanted it. But if you just wanted the tidal flow to go in and out, if the tide's coming in and you want your, your rice field flooded, you raise the gate on the river side, and the water comes through and goes into the, to the rice field. And if you want to keep it there, you then make the gate on the, on the field side, you lock it in place. And then if you want to drain it, Oh, we got a low tide. You raise the gate on the field side, and it flows out into the river. Exactly. And so the Charleston drains were fitted with similar floodgates. So you could let them fill up with high tide salt water if you wanted to, and you would close the gates, and you would wait for the tide to drop, and you would open the gates. And basically what that would do would to flush out any manure or debris or anything else that had gotten stuck in the drains. It would basically flush or clean them out. The problem with them is you have to have somebody manning those gates, just like a rice field. If somebody's asleep at the switch and they don't open or close the gates at the right time, you can trap water in or out when you don't want to. And another struggle is if we get bad rain at high tide when those are already full, 
we're going to flood. If you had them completely empty at high, at high tide because you knew a storm was going to come, so you flushed them out at low tide, closed the doors, kept them empty, and it rained, those drains aren't reservoirs. They can only hold so much. So at a certain point, that water will start wicking out of the drains into the street. Anybody in Charleston has seen this happen. You're just walking along and there's tide water coming out of a, a manhole cover or a grate. It's because there's just nowhere for it to go. All right. How, do, how are those gates controlled today? <laughs> um, they are electronically controlled. So, you know, it's kind of fascinating that this 18th century rice dike engineering is basically still what we use today. We just have computers to control the opening and closing. So Colonial Lake in downtown Charleston, which was marshes, and it was impounded to make it into a mill pond when the Ashley River side of the peninsula was a little more industrial and then converted into a reflecting pond in the 1880s. It's still connected to the Ashley River. So there's still now a computerized gate that will allow you to let water in or out of that pond. So folks, they shouldn't eat it, but they fish and they crab in it because the salt water critters come right through that drain when the gate is open. Oh, okay. It's a tidal basin. Pretty much, yeah. So, I mean, natural in that sense, but then turned into a man-made feature. But it's, it's still tidally influenced, just like it would have been when it was a basin. Christina, we need to stop for a moment, let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's Journal, and I'm talking with Professor Christina Butler about her book, Low Country at High Tide, which deals with the flooding, drainage, and reclamation of land in Charleston, South Carolina. All right, we got the 18th and 19th century drains that are tidal. Uh, now there's a more sophisticated system. There is. So the new drain system, and, and I want to remind the listeners that the 19th century stuff is still working, and it'll still act as a storm drain. But in areas of this city that are known for flooding because they weren't reclaimed well, like the market or like Lockwood Boulevard that has settled some... I was going to ask about Lockwood later. Before you get into the draining, let's you, you've mentioned the market. I did know that the market had originally been creeks. Mm -hmm. And Christopher Gadsden had a hand in filling those in mm -hmm. early on. But that whole area is man-made. Yes. And it, it floods. It does, heavily. So imagine how difficult it is now to try and fix drainage infrastructure, not only in made land, but in a National Historic Landmark district that's full of historic buildings. You have to be really, really careful when you're excavating. And there really hasn't been a solution to solving those areas yet. Not as such. Because I do read the Post and Courier fairly re regularly. And in September, they ran a big series on Charleston flooding. Mm -hmm. Yes, people are trying to solve the issue, but there's no easy solution to what you've got now. They brought in people from the Netherlands to try to make it work. Right. Bring in some outside experts. Hope they have a new idea. And you want to talk about what the Netherlands recommended? That, that didn't get in your book because your book came out before they were here. Right, before they arrived. So the folks who came over from the Netherlands had all kinds of really great but really expensive suggestions. And currently, I guess the biggest thing on the horizon is whether we should or shouldn't build a brand new seawall that runs completely around the peninsula and basically buffers or protects the earlier seawalls. So it's a multi-billion dollar project and it remains to be seen if it'll happen or what, you know, the cultural or preservation impact will be. It wasn't going to be a uniform height, which is one of the things people are having trouble visualizing, but, you know, anywhere from 8 to 20 foot. So if you've been to New Orleans and walked next to the levee, we're talking a pretty major, imposing new piece of infrastructure. And this is, would include, say, high battery, a wall taller than that. Yes. Yes. Uh, okay. Hard well, to visualize. Well, it's hard to visualize. And um, those folks who live on East Bay, I'm just trying to visualize what, if you're walking in, the, in White Point Garden, you wouldn't be able to see the harbor. Right. So, and that's one of the, the concerns is, yes, we flood and we have to address that. But if the infrastructure required 
makes Charleston not Charleston anymore, not a historic city, you have a problem. So the folks from the Netherlands mentioned that the wall or ones like it would be potentially far enough out that it wouldn't be like when you stand right next to a three-story building and you look up and it's looming. You walk back about 20 feet and that building is less imposing. So if the wall was 20 foot and it was 50 to 100 foot out, it wouldn't look as tall. But then you run into the complication of the Cooper River being a shipping channel. Gonna, oh, all right. Well, you, you mentioned Lockwood Boulevard which is slowly slowly sinking how much per year back into the marsh? It depends when it was created, because the 1930s and 40s section seems to be doing a little bit better. Some of the sections closer to the Citadel, Brittle Bank Park, were done with sanitary landfill, which is a classy 1950s term for taking city garbage, trying to pull diapers and organic stuff out of it, throwing it in a marsh and compacting it with a steamroller. So that stuff, whilst compacted well, is on top of marsh mud and seems to be settling, you know, anywhere from three to seven inches a year. Okay. Now that's what I want. Three to seven inches a year. Mm-hmm. So what does that do to the pavement? Well, it heaves it and cracks it and makes it really fun for kids on skateboards. But then you go and you pave on top of it again to level it out, and you've added that much more weight onto something that's already sinking. So then it can potentially accelerate settling if you're putting too much extra material on it to level it out. Well, the Cooper Riverside, again, we're still over—I'm sorry, the Ashley Riverside— Marsh was being filled in with, by the acreage well into the 1950s and 60s. The medical universities all built on filled land. Yeah, all reclaimed. As I mentioned at the beginning, it's so easy to be a visitor or a Charlestonian and just be appalled. Well, how come no one's fixed this? And the short answer is everybody built on the coast because they wanted to be able to ship because we're a maritime city. But everybody since the beginning of time has known when you build on the coast, it's going to flood and it's going to be a risk. Our problems are similar to New Orleans or Boston or Newport. Folks built on the smart ground first and they ran out of land and then they started getting creative. And sometimes it's a well-engineered city project. And sometimes it was a speculative developer doing whatever he could get away with in the 1850s. So there was no, what we would call today, there was no comprehensive plan for filling and turning the Charleston Peninsula into what it is today. So much of it was done piecemeal over 300 years that it's hard to fix because one area is reclaimed completely differently from another. And if it was done by a private developer, we don't have any plans for that. You don't even know where they got that fill. Well, you mentioned sanitary landfill. We can talk about, particularly in the 18th century, it was an, uh, there were unsanitary landfills. <laughs> yes. And the one piece of legislation I think you referred to is, and I, I talked about bodies, is people were disposing of corpses. Yeah. Not just pig carcasses. They were putting human bodies, you know, as part of part of landfill and they uh, they forbade that. Things you can't get away with anymore that folks just did and took for granted. I mean, dumping anything you wanted to get rid of into a marsh, which is horrible, but it happened. I want to get back to the fill land. Um, you know, you've got this wonderful 1850s bird's eye view of the city. All of that beautiful stuff on the left side and in the front was built on marshes. Yes. So if you imagine meeting and King Street being sort of the high spine of the city and the land dropping off towards the rivers on each side and tidal creeks and marshes just stemming in almost to Meeting Street, almost to King Street. Your book is divided historically very nicely by historic periods. We've done the 18th century sort of, but then we've skipped over, jumped all the way to the the 20th century. How about filling in between? So 19th century is when the city becomes the city. So 1783, we incorporate, we have a city government. That's a major turning point for 
the story of Phil because now all of the Charlestonians have a government to complain to. They have city council members to complain to if, you know, their street in Harleston is underwater six times a month. And similarly, we have a city government to sort of at least attempt to plan bigger projects. So by the time we get into the 19th century, Charleston had grown enough that we annexed the neck or the upper section of the peninsula. So Calhoun Street would have been the edge of the city, the end of the incorporated city until 1850. So if you were living in what's now Ragboro or what we call the east side that used to be Hampstead Village, those areas would have been unincorporated. So very little oversight of how fill would have been done, you know, very few municipal services. Then in 1850, the city annexes the whole upper section of the peninsula. And then at that moment, they inherit all of the infrastructural problems of those earlier communities. So suddenly, the streets department is having to worry about, you know, thousands more feet of streets that flood all the time, providing drainage for an entire new section of the city. Did the Civil War change anything? It ground lots of infrastructural hopes and dreams to a halt, that's for sure. So the High Battery and White Point were complete and very popular, you know, a money-generating, beautiful part of the city. And so even in the 1830s, Mayor Hayne had envisioned continuing that seawall, what we now call the battery, all the way around the west side of the peninsula. And periodically, mayors would talk basically about the next step of that project. After the American Civil War, there just wasn't funding for any big projects. In case in point, 1911, we get back to the battery and we do the next phase, which is Murray Boulevard. And then with um, some New Deal help, In the 1930s and 40s, we create the city marina and the beginning of Lockwood Boulevard. So mayors had long envisioned kind of having a hard wall with a promenade, both seawall protection and beautification that went all the way around the peninsula. And after 1865, there just wasn't really money to do that. People are still talking about it, but are there are there plans somewhere that does continue the seawall and the promenade all the way around? Well, not really, because a lot of the remaining area we might want to continue is technically um, protected wetlands, but Laurel Island, which is a small partially man-made garbage island on the east side of the peninsula in the Cooper River is um, currently here in October up for planning permission to create what they're calling a mini Daniel Island, new residential community. And there's another one on the west side of the peninsula, Magnolia Development. So they're not going to be linked to the city with a high battery, but we're still trying to develop every little bit that we can. When we think about Charleston flooding, we, of course, think about the peninsula, but Charleston is west of the Ashley as well, and there are flooding issues on that side of the city, too. Absolutely. So much like I mentioned in 1850, we annexed the Neck, the Upper Peninsula, and now we have an infrastructure problem. Mm. Around 1960, The city government started annexing what's now West Ashley, and we keep growing. And, you know, Daniel Island is Berkeley County, but it's part of the city of Charleston. So as we grow, we have a bigger and bigger geographic area that you have to link with good transportation, and you have more area to deal with flooding. So West Ashley is is a tricky one. Because just like downtown Charleston, the developers built on the high ground first. And as our population in the low country grows, we keep building further and further out into at-risk areas. And much like downtown, West Ashley floods worse now than it used to because there's less permeable land because we continue developing. So your 1960 subdivision might have done okay during Hurricane Hugo in 1989. But in the four storms we've had back to back these last couple of years, those neighborhoods have flooded almost every time because there's more hardscaping and more development around them. I hate this, but Alfred's giving me the wind-up sign. Any last words you would like to have for our listeners before we sign off? So I guess a couple 
parting comments, it's always easier <laughs> to start a project new. When you're doing engineering and flood abatement in Charleston, you're trying to solve a 350-year-old problem. And historically, we literally would take a graveyard, which is in low area, put sand and fill on it and build on top of it. There's just things you can't do anymore that people used to do and think nothing of. You can't put slaughterhouse remains in the street in front of somebody's house anymore and pave on top of it. So we're lucky in a lot of ways to live and breathe and walk around Charleston in 2020. But this is not a new problem. All right. Christina, in closing, I'm going to read the back paragraph on your book. The signs are there. Our coastal cities are increasingly susceptible to flooding as the climate changes. Charleston, South Carolina is no exception and is one of the American cities most vulnerable to rising sea levels. Low Country at High Tide is the first book to deal with the topographic evolution of Charleston, its history of flooding from the 17th century to the present, and the efforts made to keep its populace high and dry as well as safe and healthy. And with that, Christina Butler, thank you so much for being with us today on The Journal. Thank you so much. It was such an honor. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I know that I did. Christina Butler has written an interesting and, in many ways, a fascinating story of how the current topography of the city of Charleston evolved. She's used three centuries of records, and she shows not only the alterations to the landscape past and present, but what impact that has had on contemporary life in the port city. It's all a part of our history, how we as South Carolinians have changed our landscape over time. And now those of us in the 21st century are having to live with that history. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETB Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.